0: Welcome to Kick the Dogma. I'm your host, John Emmerich. You may have noticed different intro music. I went with classical this time, a Bach violin concerto in A minor, as a tribute to our guest today, historian, fund manager, and author of his fourth book, Daniel Paris. Today we're talking about his latest book, The Ownership Dividend, which requires a discussion about the state of the investment universe more generally. Enjoy. With me today is Daniel Paris, author of the new book, The Ownership Dividend, The Coming Paradigm Shift in the U.S. Stock Market. Welcome, Daniel.
1: John, thank you so much for having me on the show.
0: I've been looking forward to this interview for a bunch of reasons. Um, We've gotten to know each other a little bit, but also because you're more than just an author or an academic, you're a practitioner, which makes this different from most of the other interviews I've been able to do in the investing space. Can you share a little bit about your background and the interesting path you've taken to get to this uh, current career you're in? And I say current, you've been in it for a while, but I think you know what I mean.
1: Yeah, I, I did change careers and uh, my career path uh, is not something you would naturally want to reproduce. It belongs, as I've joked in the past, in the Journal of Irreproducible Results. I started out as a historian of the Soviet Union in the late Cold War, the Reagan era, Cold War in the 1980s. And by the time I came out, trained in Soviet studies, A, it was no longer called Soviet studies, uh, modern Russian history. Um, The Soviet Union had disappeared, funding had disappeared, and uh, the West had won. That was the conclusion at the time in the mid-90s. Convergence was happening. It might be a little bit rough, a little bit of Wild West capitalism, but convergence had won, uh, game over, and uh, so uh, I, I moved on because the academic study of, of the Soviet Union kind of disappeared this in terms of supply and demand. There were shifts away from teaching positions in Russian studies and a shift towards actual engagement. Well, fast forward 30 years uh Turns out that the uh, mission accomplished call was a little bit premature, but I, I did leave and, uh, as a historian, went to work in the in the capital markets um, uh-huh. as a stock researcher. I had had an interest in in a limited interest, not you no know, not I wasn't you know uh, buying stocks at at age eight on my father's brokerage account and s- scouring the Wall Street Journal. I did watch Lewis Rukaiser in Wall Street Week as a as a relatively young person, but it was it was just an interest. Uh, but not a, a particularly high-profile one. But what I had developed as a historian was a real interest in writing and research, and I thought I could apply that in business. Uh, I actually, tried a couple different business venues uh, as I made a career transition in my late th- in my early thirties. Excuse me. Uh, note to anyone else: if you're in your early thirties and transitioning from academia into business. Please make sure you know how Excel works or Google Sheets. <laughs> um, it really makes a difference. Learn a little bit of accounting, a little bit of psychology. I d- had none of those. So it was a very difficult transition. But I finally made my way into financial research for a firm in New York called Argus Research, a great firm that still exists as an independent stock research firm uh, run by a friend of mine, John Eade. Highly recommended that you look up their material and subscribe. Uh, and then after 9-11, when my wife and I were downtown and my wife was in the World Trade Center complex uh, during the attacks, we decided to leave uh, New York. Uh, ended up in Pittsburgh, where I'd never been before, working for a Federated, now Federated Hermes. And as you point out, uh, in, not just a few years ago, but uh, we are now passing, uh, coming up on 22 years at, in, in Pittsburgh and Federated.
0: Awesome. And um, I should point out, since you were too modest, that this is, your fourth book, and uh, the first two were specifically about the 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 same topic that you're writing about in the third book. the the It's the Strategic Dividend Investor and the Dividend Imperative, which sounds wonderfully like a, a Robert Ludlum no- novel title, without having probably planned it from the beginning. With this third book, is there a narrative arc on the just the dividends subject? And we'll talk about the third uh, the the other yeah. book later.
1: Yeah. There is a narrative arc. And if I did do it again, I, w- I probably wouldn't do it this way. Books one and two, the dividend, strategic dividend investor and dividend imperative probably should have come out together. Uh, so they, that would have made more sense. There was a lot of nuts and bolts, a really practitioner, I, I don't want to say you know, how to make money in the market approach, but it was a little bit closer to that. It was uh, making an argument why a particular investment style made sense. And that made, led to a lot of historical analysis of, and performance claims, frankly, and, claims of, uh, shall I use the word superior, superiority? I don't know. But we'll, we'll, it was in that spirit of that. Out of that, in the second book, the response to the first, a couple points about share prices being driven by dividends, which for the last 30 years strikes some investors as quite unusual. But I, I circled back in the second book to that point made in the first about share prices being driven by dividends. It's a worthy topic now. It's a worthy topic uh, then. And uh, about buybacks and about a number of other kind of controversial issues. Uh, but both of those would be nuts and bolts books, the data in those books is now a decade or 15 years old, but the arguments stand. I have no no uh, uh, issue with either uh, of them. Uh, in 2018, I published another book, uh, Getting Back to Business, you referenced, and now I have uh, The Ownership Dividend coming out in uh, just now in early 2024. They are quite different. They are for practitioners, like the first two books, uh, but they're more stepping back, and here my training as a historian comes in and my inclination as a historian, stepping back and saying, what, what kind of system are we using? Where did it come from? Right. Why are we using it now? The book in 2018 applied that to modern portfolio theory. It's a history of modern portfolio theory, a somewhat critical history of modern portfolio theory. You will not find critical histories of modern portfolio theory <laughs> in the practitioner literature. Everyone says this is the greatest thing since sliced bread and canned beer. And at the time it was developed, it was 50 or 60 years later, I would just point out you're using technology and a theory that uh, was applied, (laughs) created in the 1950s and 60s, very different intellectual environment to fix problems in the 1920s and 30s, which were very real. And modern portfolio theory did a great job. Harry Markowitz, congratulations. Well-earned plaudits. But there are a lot of flaws associated with that, which I think go underappreciated and one sees as a historian. The book that's just come out is also a step back... From a historical perspective, and say, what's the environment that we've been operating in for the last couple of decades in the stock market? And because it's a very unusual environment, John, as you know, because you've seen, read the work and, and snippets of prior work, a dividendless stock market. Is not illegal, immoral, or unethical, but it is unusual. Right, and uh, this book takes up the issue of how we got to that state and why I believe that is uh, coming to an end. Again, strongly from a historical expect- perspective, explaining what allowed a cashless investment platform to emerge because it's a very unusual concept, and uh, why it was able to be sustained kind of successfully for several decades, and why, given the events of the last several years that's no longer sustainable.
0: The current book talks a little bit about something specific that uh, was also prevalent in getting back to business. And that's this notion of starting with the mindset and the framework of being a private investor, a business owner. Can you talk a little bit about that? And I'm interested to know if you always saw it like that from the moment you started in the business or did becoming a private investor along the way, buying uh, properties and things like that, cause you to circle back and, and think differently about how you were a public equity investor?
1: That's a, that's a great question. And I, I would like to say, I you know, understood this as a child and, and, <laughs> and applied it from my newspaper route and uh, my days in the Pizzerina Uno pizza shop in, 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 in DC near Capitol Hill and my under- and absolutely not. I didn't have this sensibility significantly. As a matter of fact, when I entered the profession I quickly had to memorize the rules, and if you take the CFA program, so I was entering in my early to mid thirties uh, and I was had to memorize the rules of a new profession, had to memorize the language of a new profession. I was not in a position to critique <laughs> uh, the in, an entire new profession. I quickly had to memorize it if I wanted to make my way in this profession. And if you memorize the rules of the CFA, it's antithetical to everything that I've come to represent. It is buy low, sell, high, repeat frequently, generate. Risk-adjusted relative outperformance, a total return, and investors are indifferent between a cash payment and a higher share price. That's the essence of of the CFA curriculum. In a nutshell, yeah. In a nutshell, and so I quickly memorized that. I I took those three exams. I passed them. It was not pleasant. It was, it's if you're not prepared for that at that time, 25 years ago, uh, I did. You know, I, I I got through it, but boy, that was unpleasant. this is uh, in the days when the CFA exam was live, in person, and once a year, uh, maybe level one was twice a year, something like that. So it was a minimum of three years. Yeah. Uh, but once I was in the profession, my historical inclination – I still, John, identify primarily as a historian. I just happened to work outside the history profession to make a living. My historical inclination kicked in. And that's when I started asking, okay, I just passed the CFA. I'm uh, supporting as an analyst uh, various portfolios, trying to uh, choose companies that suit the needs of the particular portfolios. So I was supporting a variety of styles at that time at, at uh, Federated. And, but my, my historical training came in and I said, okay, this is kind of strange. Why, why are we doing this this way? Where did this come from? Because if you parachuted into an investment management shop, you might find, without previous experience, you might find, well, that's a strange thing to do. Why are you doing it? Yes, I get. Buy low, sell high, repeat frequently, et cetera. But the understanding, the philosophy of why you're doing that, to me, didn't make sense. After I'd memorized it, didn't immediately make sense. And my response is to look at things, well, where did it come from? Well, markets are markets speculators are speculators. There's nothing wrong with that. Not illegal, not immoral, not unethical. Markets allocate capital. Markets provide an opportunity for price discovery. Markets do all of these things. It's, 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 it's all good. But I, I did begin to observe how strange some of the practices were at the time. So that's in the you know, early, to, early, mid, late 2000s. The first book came out in 2011, I think. And I As I went through that process of restudy of the field of what I was doing, it was hard to uh, avoid the conclusion that the kind of default setting for ownership of a business – as a minority investor in a business is a tangible cash flow associated with it, other than pure speculations or turnarounds or you know, early stage companies. And that the US stock market had moved away from that, and yet it seemed to me to make a lot of sense. There was nothing wrong with the buy low, sell high, repeat frequently internet stocks, except they often would go as you know far down as they went up and so forth but that the norm would be as in real estate as in private business as in anyone's enterprise would be some sort of cash flow based relationship and as i looked into that more and more i gravitated more and more towards that style ended up being involved with products that focus on that very traditional approach to business ownership through the stock market and became a portfolio manager uh, of a series of products that that are, in a sense, boutique products for the U.S. stock market now because they are focused on delivering a high and rising income stream from high-quality business assets, whereas in a market that yields only 1.5% and buybacks are all the rage, that's a boutique style. And so that both my professional career and writing about it went uh, in parallel. But it took, I don't know, five years after I uh, arrived at Federated for me to to set that up. It was not that I you know uh, uh Warren Buffett you know, was writing letters to Ben Graham when he's a teenager and things like that I I cannot claim uh, that type of of I'm sure Seth Klarman has some sort of story about value investing from an early age yep. and they all, I I can't claim it my story is about uh, from an early age or about being Secretary of State or about the Cold War, about Russian history. Uh, and I'm happy to circle back to them because it turns out they're all relevant right now. But uh, I was not thinking about the stock market other than Louis Rukeiser and catching his his show at an early age. But it really was the, the application of my historical background to what I thought was an ahistorically structured or unusually structured business ownership platform known as the US stock market from the 1990s to the present.
0: Before I jump into the book, because I have this question later down in my list, but you've referenced the the U.S. market and an unusual market historically and all that. Can you put what's going on and what has gone on in the U.S. in the context of global markets? How do how do European uh, companies companies headquartered around the world uh, think about dividends? My my perspective has been they I don't think they really got away from it. They always paid out a, a high payout ratio and for the most part still do. I mean, I've looked at some some company, excuse me, country uh, dividend yields, you know, you're talking about one and a quarter, one and a half percent uh, at countries right now, like you can actually for the first time in 23 years, like put together between bonds and stocks, like a decent income generating portfolio, but you're, you're gonna wanna go outside the, the US to do that. Do I have that right about a different perspective around the world than the US? We're kind of anomalous in this regard. I think we're
1: anomalous from a business ownership perspective, but there are certain frameworks that have affected other markets as well, basically interest rates. And when you have interest rates at low levels, uh, like you do in Switzerland or Germany over a number of decades, then the cash payout, the expected cash payout is low. So those companies all pay dividends, but the, the, uh, in those markets and, and really always have, they're, they're very unusual to find major companies in Europe that don't have a dividend, uh, but the yields would have been relatively low and that does reflect kind of competitive dynamics for asset classes. Uh, but they never really got away from dividends, but the yields got low because interest rates got low. Japan is its own special case, very unusual. Uh, you could make the argument as well that it's just uh, kissing cousin to the interest rate argument, but it, it is what it is. They've had these very low set of numbers for a long period of time, and that's uh, distortionary. But if you do look at mature markets outside the United States, kind of ex-Japan, you do see a cash nexus. It wasn't a very high cash nexus, but you see a cash nexus. If you do look at any real estate ownership, serious long-term real estate ownership anywhere in the world, anytime in the last 5,000 years, cash nexus. You know, Ongoing businesses, cash nexus. Speculation, speculation. Uh, commodity prices, it's not a cash nexus. It's buy low, sell high, repeat frequently, and so forth. But ongoing enterprises, there's always been a cash nexus. So it did make the US look so unusual when the cash nexus was diminished, attenuated, uh, replaced by buybacks, buy buybacks buy share buybacks, which made a lot of Wall Street investors and Wall Street houses very, very happy and very wealthy. But the, the attenuation of the cash nexus was unusual. Japan is an outlier. But even when low, you see low interest rates in, in, in uh, Germany and Switzerland, there still was a dividend there. There still was a dividend there for this, and you know the the, the Silicon Valley advocates will say they didn't have, uh, you know, the Googles and Facebooks and Amazons, uh, and uh, they're now trying to play catch up. Uh, and uh, why are you complaining? We have all these wonderful technologies. Yeah, they don't pay dividends, but we have all these wonderful technologies. That's a fair point. Uh, my counter argument is that those companies. The NASDAQ revolution have now uh, matured and are very, very large, very, very cash flow, and they're at risk of wasting money if they don't start paying a dividend. That is, um, I suppose they're all going to spend it. The the upcoming excuse for all these very large, mature companies to not pay a dividend for the next five or 10 years will be AI. Maybe that works out. Maybe it doesn't. We shall see.
0: Yeah, and we'll get into things like free cash flow yield or what I call like- the ability to pay a dividend versus just the dividend. But let, let's jump into it. You know, The subtitle of the book is The Coming Paradigm Shift in the US Stock Market. Uh, what And I, I can think about this in, in layers. There's what you're going to start off talking about, the 40 years of declining interest rates and, and declining dividends and share repurchases in Silicon Valley. And then there's two more layers to it, which I think would be how corporations change um, that's the next level. And then how investors think about it, but s- set up the, the, the paradigm shift based on the, the change that we're facing after decades and decades of, of things only moving in, in one direction and dividends becoming less significant in the market.
1: Yeah, and I th- I covered a couple of the highlights, but there's one chapter on political economy towards the end, which is getting a lot of play because it's political. And we're in a political year, but it, it gets really interesting, the timing. Uh, the driver for, for me is, is this interest rate phenomenon. You can put dates on it. It's 1981 to 2020. The 10-year was unusually high for legitimate reasons, meaning there's a period of of great inflation, et cetera, and the Fed's raising rates. But the tenure starts coming down in in 1981 and and bottoms effectively in 2020. But let's look at some other events that characterize that paradigm from 1980 to 2020. Uh, Deng Xiaoping comes to power in China in 1979. Margaret Thatcher is elected in 1979. Ronald Reagan is elected in 1980. Share buybacks, the safe harbor statement that allows share buybacks to prosper is 1982. Interest rates, 1981. It's stunning coincidence of factors. A shift from the, I'll call it Keynesian, FDR, New Deal environment, which affects all of Europe and the United States, to a Milton Friedman, Frederick Hayek, Uh, The march of of capital and unfettered capital around the globe, globalization, what we call global uh, neoliberalism. And it works really, really well for four decades. It produces significant asset values, tremendous uh, productivity, uh, convenience but at a cost, the supply chain, everything's now made in China as a result of that and or uh, in uh, very global supply chains. Uh, Industry in the United States has been completely uh, destroyed as a consequence, Uh, uh, importing deflation. uh, Stock market, very, very high. Positive factors, negative factors. Runs for 40 years and then it runs out. It runs out into, in 2016, Donald Trump. It runs out in 2016 to Brexit. Then it really hits a wall in 2020 with uh, COVID and the supply chain failing. 2021 in the United States with the coup attempt, uh, where you have as a reflection of that coup attempt, um, the fact that there's no consensus in the United States anymore about what the geopolitics should be. As a matter of fact, There's no consensus anymore that we even need a consensus. <laughs> right. and, and in 2022, uh, Russia invades Ukraine, which challenges the idea of uh, neoliberalism success. Francis Fukuyama, the success of the Western idea, uh, and in 2020, in September, the 10-year bottomed. So suddenly, all of these factors—the the beginning and the end of a paradigm—is uh, really. Clearly marked, and I, I would encourage people to look up Gary Gerstle, G E R S T L E. I forget the name of the book. Also on the New Books Network, everyone should be listening to the New Books Network all the time. Uh, Gary Gerstle has uh, he's not interested in the finance portion of this at all, but he is interested in the geopolitics, and he has a nice uh, new book out that describes uh, the the rise and fall of the the neoliberal paradigm. And again, he's not a finance person, and interest rates don't figure into his calculation, but it's not an accident that interest rates peaked at the beginning of this period and bottomed at the end of this period. Right. Got it um, and so that's it it it's really this whole paradigm now i'm I'm asked and you know have been asked where are we going then? okay, this paradigm is is leaving. What does that mean? Well, it's been a period of outsourcing, very low regulation, deregulation in the United States. The march of capital, unfettered access to markets around the world. I don't have an exact outline of where we're going, but you can assume it's not going to look like the last forty years. Donald Trump has proved that. What's going on with China has proved that. To some extent, the SEC regulatory hand is is suggestive of that. Uh, there's some obvious things: reshoring, uh, onshoring, friendshoring. I've made a very particular point in the book to argue that. Uh, as we've outsourced everything, uh, we have succumbed to what Julius Crine and other people working on a new form of conservatism to replace Milton Friedman in the global march of uh, neoliberalism, uh, uh, kind of a new conservatism, point out that the financialization of the stock market, where you're getting the same asset but a higher price for it by just playing with but with buybacks and, and, and so forth. Yeah, financial um, engineering financial engineering yeah, no one uh, knows, so. yeah and so uh, and again financial engineering i make a, a kind of a big deal about miller and Modigliani, 1958 1961 but the financial engineering of buybacks is a gross violation of miller and Modigliani, 1958 1961 you're just shifting you're shifting the p- pieces around you're not changing the product their thesis was valid at the time this is what contributed to the uh, the so-called dividend indifference argument in 1961 but their 1958 first article it was a really important article saying it doesn't matter how you package the assets. What matters is the productivity of the underlying assets. If you change the packaging, you're not going to ch- shouldn't change the value of the company uh, because you haven't changed the underlying assets. Well, buybacks and financial engineering are a violation of Milan Modigliani 1961 and uh, 1958, and that's what we really came to. So I, I think that a lot of that is going to be. Uh, we're going to be retreating from a lot of what we saw, and I put a number on it in the book, and it's a, you know, roughly a guess. It's 200 basis points of S and P 500 margin. I took S and P 500 non-financial operating margins are up 400 basis points in less, I think, 20 25 years. I just took half and said half of that has to. You cannot outsource this to the absolutely lowest source provider in China anymore. That's not going to work anymore. It's going to cost you more to make that widget or to provide that service. I don't know how much more. My guess is half of the gain that has been made in the last 40 years is going to come back. And I did the math of what that means in terms of billions of dollars. I could be wrong, but it's just a notion that companies are going to need to invest more uh, locally in people, not just firing people. There's a difference. And in efficacy, not efficiency. That is redundancy, meaning having more backup systems, not just running an incredibly thin supply chain where if something fails, then your whole system collapses. You're going to need to have more redundancy, efficacy over efficiency. So that's my forecast for the future. You heard it here. Uh, It does, I think, affect how people should think about the stock market, a little less wild west, a little bit more uh, conservatively.
0: And I tagged you on one of your own posts on social media about the the Boeing story, no one's making light of what was a horrifically dangerous situation. But uh, that's that's in a way, I think you were saying, representative some of the things you're you're talking about, which is you've outsourced everything, you've kind of lost control of the quality process. Um, if you want to talk about that a little bit, I'll just also throw out that the whole the, our whole country woke up during uh, the pandemic and after a particular hurricane to find out that ninety percent of our vaccines were made. On an island out, you know, in the Atlantic somewhere, you know, yeah, um, the cr- crazy, right? I mean, just
1: no. The swabs. There was only one swab maker left in this country right. as a little family-controlled business somewhere in the Northeast, and they they simply were uh, unable to respond. Unable to, right? Yeah, yeah. The, the the aircraft manufacturer example, I think, is sadly too too good not to not to discuss. To and, yep. yeah, and it, it's an example of a shift from. Manufacturing something and having uh, vertically integrated manufacturing to assembling something. Right. Higher margin to assemble, better profits, probably, presumably, uh, higher share price to show Wall Street. Uh, but you lost vertical integration control and quality control. And that's what's happened to that that uh that company uh i have an aviation background so i have a particular interest in it and that's why i kind of glom on but there would be many other examples the real issue with that aircraft that bothers me is that it's a 60 year old fuselage and instead of developing a new narrow body fuselage and aircraft they keep it's a frankenstein's monster i'm sorry meaning they keep revising it now an engineer from that company would say those revisions are perfectly fine but it still is a 60 year old fuselage it is the same structure kind of low to the ground, by the way. It was designed for airports that didn't have um, uh, boarding gates the way we do now, so it's lower. And you'll notice the airplane that's already 30 years old the, the counter narrow body aircraft made in Europe sits up higher and is uh, naturally set up for for modern airports with- uh,
0: So this was back when you were walking on the tarmac and getting up the- stairs. And you went up the stairs. Right. Yeah. And okay. so, you know, that's when that- I mean, think about that.
1: Historian, 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 history, please. History matters. Why do you think that particular aircraft sits low to the ground? There's a- is, is, is there an aerodynamic reason? There may be. I don't know. But there was an actual practical reason why that aircraft sits low to the ground. So the world's changed. We're now in the nth revision of that of that aircraft frame. It's really time for a new new aircraft frame. And yet the company, find publicly traded, maximized profits, is finds it more efficient to uh, update the airframe than than develop a new one. And it's very very clear developing new airframes are incredibly expensive and risky. I'm not saying that's the easy solution, but after fifty or sixty years. That airframe flew first in 1967. We're coming up on 60 years for that airframe. Yeah. I think it's time for a new narrow body. Yeah. Uh, I understand that the US Air Force is able to fly B 52s, but they have a kind of a different mission. And it's okay. only a few hundred of them. Right. And uh, they can be maintained. They've changed the engine. They can ma- be maintained in such a way to achieve their mission. But a commercial aircraft after 60 years, I don't know. So in any case, that is a poster child, I think, of uh, potentially, I don't want to get involved in any lawsuits, but a poster child of financialization and and uh, the outsourcing of manufacturing, the loss of manufacturing control. I Again, people on the other side would say, no, 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 that's a reasonable, they made reasonable decisions. And at the time, they were reasonable decisions. But if you step back, you see the shift from manufacturing to just assembly and uh, just making revisions to a business model rather than... Really, a new uh, a, a new product suitable for the times.
0: Let's jump into the one of the the bigger pieces of the of this topic, which is the share repurchase versus uh, dividend payment. So paradigm shift. You know, fewer and fewer dividends, more and more share repurchases. Um, and first of all, the first half of has. You have four or five examples, like making the argument for them, explaining why people. Uh, why the industry, why corporate America started preferring share repurchases at move stocks higher uh, re- resulted in. Um,
1: may move stocks higher appear appears appears to move stocks higher.
0: may result in higher future EPS. And then, of course, the the big one that I, I had to walk through and, and revisit the history, the the tax efficiency. Can, can you go ahead and just walk through from their side? The case uh, for share repurchases over dividends and kind of address, just address them as they go. Yeah.
1: And again, it, there, there's a historical answer and a practical answer. A historical answer is in the blackboard or whiteboard exercise, chalkboard exercise at the time in 1952, 1959, 1958, 1961, the various people, 1964 and 65, when all the modern finance is being worked out, there is an assumption that is made, it's a very simple assumption. Un, a a Capital appreciation gain is as good as a dividend payment from an investment perspective. Investors are indifferent between a share price appreciation. not has to be harvested. They have to sell the asset to realize it, but the academics don't care about that. Uh, A capital gain is just as good as a dividend payment to fund consumption in terms of total. And total return includes both share price changes and income payments. That's how total return is calculated. So you can have one or the other. And therefore, in an academic setting, people are indifferent. If it turns out that there's a slight, and sometimes it was slight, sometimes it was more than slight in the 50s and 60s, difference in taxation between a capital gain and the income, then the academics, Fisher Black, among others, would prefer one or the other. And there's nothing wrong with that. Really, since 1986 and specifically from 2003, there's been no material taxation gain, difference between a long-term capital gain and a a qualified dividend income. So the taxation argument, again, why be a historian? Taxation argument no longer applies uh, really since 2003. It was a huge issue in in the 1950s and 60s when there was a difference in, in tax rates. Uh, the only taxation remaining difference is that you can time one when you have your harvested capital gain and you don't really time a dividend payment. It times you. It, it happens whenever it happens. And for some people, that may be important. And they may want to subordinate investment policy to tax minimization policy over that control issue. I f- think that doesn't make sense. I s- spent some time in the book on that. But a lot of people... Would rather lose money than than cut a check to the government. And they're more than welcome. It's a free country for now. We shall see whether in 12 months it is still a free country. But uh, so the taxation issue was a big deal. It's now a very small deal. Not so small for some people, but a a small deal. The second phenomenon is that buybacks, again, if you're indifferent between a capital gain and an income payment, buybacks emerge. They were not part of the equation, they did not exist as we know them in the 1950s and 60s, but it's very easy to, once they come into being in the 1980s and take off in the 1990s, share buybacks are a very attractive way of generating that Capital gain to be harvested. So therefore, you 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 investors are indifferent between a dividend and a capital gain. If a buyback generates a capital gain, it's just as good as a dividend, and therefore you do that, and you have a slight currently have a slight timing advantage from taxation. So that's that's the the big argument about buybacks. They generate uh, according to the math. They generate the capital gains. And they uh, are not taxable until you choose to have them be taxable. Therefore, we should spend a trillion dollars on buybacks. And uh, Wall Street makes a lot of money off of buybacks. Trading desks, uh, senior executives get to boost their EPS. It's a very profitable exercise. There was a you know Fred Schwed's uh, book, "Where Are the Brokers' Yachts?" from 1940 about uh, where are the customers' yachts? Instead, he just sees the brokers' yachts. I, I make a, a joke I did on somewhere on social media that uh, uh, buybacks are the new brokerage fees have come way down. Brokerage fees are, are pennies on the dollar to where they were 80 years ago in in in, uh, uh, in Fred Schwed's time. The new brokerage fees, where are the brokers? Where are the customers' yachts? The new version of that is. Is, is buybacks. Buybacks supports a lot of uh, activity on Wall Street. And you know it's not illegal, it's not immoral, it's not unethical. It is, however, from a historical perspective, a very unusual way for a company to spend the profits of making widgets successfully is to go speculate in the shares on Wall Street with company money. If your company happens to be A a company that specializes in Wall Street speculation, some of the uh, trading houses and investment banks, it may be a good use of company profits. But for most widget makers or service providers, uh, speculating in the shares to me is not what I as a minority shareholder, a minority business owner would want with the cash. Uh, I'm happy to speculate in the shares myself. Uh, I would do so with the cash provided from the dividends on the company owner, having Senior management speculate in the company shares to me is not ideal.
0: Uh, I spent a brief amount of time before graduate school in the fixed income world, so I'm I'm from you know we used to calculate modified duration on corporate bonds and things like that, and and now as an equity investor, I'm 56 years old, and boy is it nice in what is becoming a sideways to maybe down market to have money coming in uh, periodically in the form of dividends. Talk about that concept of duration of cash flows, how that's lost on investors. And does, does M- how does MPT deal with dividends and duration, uh, if at all? A couple of questions there. apologize.
1: Well, I, uh, that's fine. Let me get to duration, then you can remind me about the others. Uh, I love the notion of duration. I think it's a great idea. It's a really useful way. It's the the time value of a cash flow. And it's usually expressed as a number of years. Basically, it's when you get your money back in a discounted fashion. It's a payback period for for those of you who are not playing. And you don't need to master duration to understand a long duration asset and a short duration asset, meaning something where you get paid back, particularly on the fixed income side, something where you get paid back in a short period of time, including a discount rate, and something where you get paid back over a long period of time, including a discount rate on the cash flows. So... In a dividend stock market, everything is either infinite, infinite duration because you're never getting paid. Companies that do pay dividends by definition have lower duration, meaning the cash flows add up to the purchase price of what you you paid for it, the future income stream, the dividends. Obviously, in a shorter period of time than a tech company that has zero percent yield or one percent yield, you're basically you're looking at duration either infinity or hundreds of years before you ever get paid back. The problem is in that environment, again, that environment has operated for decades and has been very successful because stocks just kept on going up. But as you point out, if the paradigm is shifting and there's more risk, if you're counting on future cash flows to make up, to justify your investment today and risk changes a discount rate, it has an enormously higher impact on something that is a long-duration portfolio. That is, if you're holding a particular uh, cloud services and parcel delivery company that started out as a book delivery company in expectation of getting a dividend and the present value of those future dividends will equal what you're prepared to pay for the share price, which in theory is how the finance 101 course would tell you how to approach that company. If Since you're not getting any dividends up front, any change in the risk profile has a dramatic impact on the present value of those that future income stream. Whereas if you're investing something that currently has an income stream and a high income stream and something changes in the risk profile, yeah, it will change how soon you'll get paid back or the risk associated with it, but nowhere near as much as a long duration asset. So by definition, dividend paying or high dividend paying companies, cash flow generating companies, real estate, rental properties. Farmland are lower duration businesses than speculating in something, whether you never know you're going to get paid back or not. And duration is simply a, a, a simple tool, the calculation. Again, no one listening to this needs know to know how to do it, right. actually do a you do not need to know how to do it. This is just a, a simple kind of tool to think about. Are you getting paid up front or are you getting paid way down in the road? And if something is changes, the interest rate, a discount rate, uh, uh, butterflies in your stomach. It's going to affect the value of the, of the down the road investment a whole lot more than the, the, the investment that pays now. And that's the notion of, of duration. And interestingly, we're talking about other markets, John. Uh, the use of duration for equities never really left the UK market uh, because they're, they're really used to, to, to dividend payments. You can still do the math. It's material. A duration, as you point out, is mostly used because it's really, really focused on fixed income and relevant for fixed income because uh, you have the right time frame and the income stream, the coupons. But it should be used in regard to any business. It can be used and can be used to applied to stocks. And I think it will be going forward when we have the return. Of the cash nexus that is that investments will have to have a cash stream associated with it once they all do, including the u s stock market, then you can begin to compare, and again, don't do this, don't do this at home, uh, but you can begin to compare, or have someone compare it'll become available the different durations of of the uh, equity investments
0: and isn't one of the effects of that cash flow stream and the low, shorter duration that is technically Less volatile, and if you're following the canon of modern finance and getting back to MPT, you know, and the whole concept of uh, risk-adjusted returns and risk being defined as short-term volatility, shouldn't that framework love dividends? Even though I don't abide by it, but I'm just how did how did the the question earlier was how does MPT address it? And the follow-on is with a lower volatility on a risk-adjusted basis, which is the end-all, be-all in that world. Shouldn't shouldn't they love dividend-paying stocks?
1: They should, but they really don't. A, before I answer that, I want to do another detour go. because I just had a conversation with some. If you look up, if you go from Markowitz and MPT fifty two fifty nine, and you fast forward just a few years to the mid sixties with uh, CAPM, the what's really interesting is that Jensen's alpha in the capital asset pricing model is. Uh, risk-adjusted outperformance. That's what he was looking for. He didn't really find much because fees were very, very high at the right. time, but it was risk-adjusted outperformance with risk being defined as the standard deviation of total return. It's getting very technical. Please hold on, everyone. <laughs> What's very funny is that it's not impossible. In fact, it's quite easy with the dividend strategy in today's non-dividend market, being a dividend investor in a stock market right now to generate alpha, not by outperforming, but by having such low volatility right. that you actually generate alpha there are products on the market that you can look up on Morningstar right now that have positive alpha numbers and underperform. So it's a cork of modern portfolio theory, and it really highlights, even within modern portfolio theory, the benefit of, of a low volatility approach. Some people don't want a low volatility approach. They want to you know, aim for, the, <laughs> aim for the bleachers every time they get to bat. That's nothing wrong with that. But even the math of modern portfolio theory, which I've spent kind of a, a lifetime time, or at least yeah. a decade complaining about, does really highlight the benefits of, of, uh, of low volatility. So, why doesn't MPT, to re ask your question, why doesn't MPT, modern portfolio theory developed in the 1950s and 60s and applied broadly now, why doesn't it like dividends? Simple answer. In 1952, 1959, when Markowitz is developing it, dividends and total return were almost identical although he made the statement that uh, an investor is indifferent between one or the other, there were no non-dividend paying stocks of significance yep. in 1952 or 1959. So for him, like Ben Graham, uh, they were essentially identical. So you, it would hard to imagine portfolios or securities without income streams. He assumed, he didn't explicitly assume that, but he assumed and understood uh, that uh, the total return of a security is, is going to be uh, not uncorrelated to its, its dividend trajectory. Uh, so you don't, if, it's gonna, if they're going to kind of head in the same direction, you don't need to make that part of the formula. So instead, he comes up with a formula, modern portfolio theory looks at the correlation of total return. I would assume total return is driven by the dividend, but fast forward 50 years, total return is driven by just share price gains. Right. So that's the difference. MPT wasn't hostile to uh, dividends. It included the dividend because it's total return calculation of volatility and correlation of total returns. But what it becomes 50 years later, why be a historian, is when the dividends have been stripped from the stock market, modern portfolio theory is just a theory of share prices.
0: Yeah. And it, you just brought up a topic we won't even have a chance to get to, which is total return and how this industry just t- almost turns a blind eye to it. I'm I, I, Before I hit record, we were talking about my, my work on boards of actively managed mutual funds. And I was in that seat for an embarrassingly long time uh, looking at the quarterly performance. And before I raised my hand said, hey, is this the benchmark you're comparing your performance to? Are these apples to apples? Are these both total return numbers or is this purely price? Which I think, as you point out in the book, is the way most indices are presented in their performance, right? Yeah, I,
1: ha- I have a whole chapter suggesting we're all counting wrong. Yeah, we now, that, are. That not, yeah, that will not win me a lot of friends. But uh, there's a whole chapter suggesting we need to re- rethink how we calculate. So on the back pages of your investment statement, it does include total return uh, for, of your account. Of And you can look up, it's a little bit hard on FactSet to look up total return for security. It's a little, let me rephrase that. It's a little bit hard to look up total return from a security on FactSet. set. <laughs> It's there, you just have to press a couple buttons, but you only need to press one button to get the share price right, and charts are share price oriented, not total return oriented, and we've all become accustomed not to total return but to just the 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 up and to the right the line, part. yeah. And now for uh, an investment without a dividend, the share price is the total return. Any change in the share price is the total return. But for dividend-paying securities, and I have an example in the book, you can have a high dividend-paying security with a chart that's flat and a total return that's higher than a dividend-free security that's going to the up and the right. So the chart on the upper to the up and to the right looks better than the chart that's flat, but the total return, the amount of money you made, what you can consume... Can be easily higher from the flat chart, yeah, and that's just that's part of the news cycle of every day looking at share prices and every day looking at the market how did the how did the s p do today? you know how did it's all of it's a culture of speculation and share prices, not a culture of total return or a culture of business ownership. I am kind of holding back the tide or i'm pre- forecasting that the tide. Is going to change significantly uh, in in this book that people will, after this 40-year period, for the variety of reasons we discussed earlier in the hour, why that's going to change and that a a new accounting should take into – a new accounting sensibility should take into account more total return that should be pushed from the back pages of your brokerage report to the front pages.
0: Well, let's um, get to that and and wrap it up with that discussion, that changing tide. Uh, You talk about utilities in the book. What are some of the things that you're now – uh, looking at uh, opportunistically going forward, I mean you're you're a dividend investor, but how does the changing paradigm change what you're looking at? And and please throw in anything else that I forgot to ask about that you want to make sure listeners understand. But before we log off,
1: yeah, and I don't I don't know that there's you know uh, the information's actionable about uh, what you should do tomorrow uh, with your portfolio. Instead, this is an argument that like when uh, share buybacks became easier in 1982, if someone had written a book about, well, share buybacks are going to change things over the next couple decades, you may want to keep that in mind. When uh, index funds came out in 1975, someone, you know, uh, Bogle did make a point that this is going to change how the world thinks. You should pay attention. Uh, I, I'm making that kind of argument. It's not what to do uh, in, the next, uh, in the next days or weeks. But among that, and there's a section in the book that deals with this, is a lot of those NASDAQ darlings are gonna have to compete for capital with cash going forward. So there is an explicit prediction that many of them will start to pay dividends. And that's good news for investors because it gives them access to a form of the economy that really haven't had uh, in the past, other than in a speculative form, share price only form. Uh, And I screen a couple of the, uh, you know, the NASDAQ or uh, indices and for cash flow, you know, the top 300 companies do this, their payout ratios, that. And there's plenty of room for for dividend payments among uh, these successful tech businesses. So I don't know when that's going to happen. I think when one breaks, when one of the, Magnificent Seven or Fangs. Real, some of them already have dividends, but they tend to be relatively small. Uh, but when that shift happens, I think the others will follow suit. And that then is good news and bad news for the investor, because good news because they would access to that s- sector, uh, challenging news because now you have to make choices as to you know which of these technology companies do you want to uh, own and so forth as a as minority owner and getting a cash flow. The really cool part of that will be those companies that don't announce a dividend. Because either they can't or they won't. Right.
0: The tide goes out.
1: Yeah. The tide goes out. Who's wearing a bathing suit or not? Well, the tide is changing. Tide's going out. We'll see which of these tech companies. And some of them are quite surprising. Look at the free cash flow. This you can do at home. It will not hurt at all. Uh, Look at the free cash flow numbers for the last couple of years for XYZ, your favorite tech company. You might be surprised. Some of them have vast amounts of free cash flow. Yeah. Others- Not so much. Don't.
0: Yeah.
1: And that- will be a telling moment. Hasn't mattered now uh, for for years. It's all been about the revenue growth, not the free cash flow. We'll see whether that lasts in the next couple of years. I, I don't think it will. I think''re going companies are going to be investors going to be looking more at balance sheets and cash flows that are distributable going forward.
0: And one of the points you also make in the book is the added benefit of the discipline it imposes on management when they uh, have to pay out uh, cash flow uh, to investors and can't just throw it at the project of the of the day.
1: Yeah. And that, we, that's a topic for another, another day. Uh, podcast. Yeah. I, would, I would simply say, take a psych 101 course before you start investing. Yeah. And uh, you, how much do you really want to tra- trust XYZ uh, uh, CEO with all of the cash? And that's, again, the challenge of being a minority shareholder. You don't control the company. You don't control the CEO. It's all the more reason, given CEO behavior and tendencies within CEO behavior, all the more reason to insist on a cash payment.
0: Daniel Paris, Author of The Ownership Dividend, The Coming Paradigm Shift in the U.S. Stock Market. I can't thank you enough for your time today. That was a lot of fun.
1: John, thanks. Uh, Indeed, it was. I look forward to continuing the conversation.
0: Have a great day.